This is the story of the one. As a maintenance engineer, he hears things differently. To the untrained ear, everything on his shop floor might sound fine, but he can hear gears grinding or a belt slipping. So he steps in to fix the problem at hand before it gets out of hand. And he knows Granger's got the right product he needs to get the job done, which is music to his ears. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Tonight, schoolyard politics. If you think that bird brain, I mean, Nikki becomes president. <laughs> Nikki Haley flips the script on Trump's name calling. And then Donald Trump got out there and just threw a temper tantrum. Can she bully the bully into a debate? Border failure by Republicans. The solution to the border eventually will require a Trump presidency. Just when Democrats are ready to make a deal for real border security, Donald Trump kills it. And someone running for president ought to try and get the, you know, the problem solved. The dangers of both sides playing politics with national security. Show me the Zin. Chuck Schumer calls for a crackdown on Zin nicotine pouches. Why pot shops next to schools are just fine in Brooklyn, but the government must save rural Americans from themselves. And masters of the air. I think we may be done. We are gonna sit here and take it. We're gonna stick with our mission as long as we can fly. Why America needs lessons of the greatest generation now. Don't you die on me before I get over there. More than ever. All right, we start with breaking news. This is becoming a thing in the presidential race. Donald Trump says game on. He is now rejecting calls for the Republican National Committee to name him the presumptive nominee after the votes in just two states. This started earlier today with a draft resolution that had been leaked asking the RNC Rules Committee to move into full general election mode. The committee said they would vote on it next week in Las Vegas. Now Donald Trump is saying, hold on to this. Quote, while I greatly appreciate the Republican National Committee wanting to make me their presumptive nominee, and while they have far more votes than necessary to do it, I feel for the sake of party unity, they should not go forward with this plan. Okay, interesting. The response from Haley's campaign to all of this today, and Maybe not a concerted effort by Donald Trump's supporters, but certainly an effort by Donald Trump's supporters to put out that the RNC believes that he is the presumptive nominee. Nikki Haley came back and said, who cares what the RNC says? And to be fair, Nikki Haley makes a pretty good point. Trump chose not to attend the RNC debates. He thumbed his nose at them. He largely ignored everything the RNC told him back in 2016. And while he was at the top of the ticket... Republicans got whipped three times in a row, 2018, 2020, and 2022, when Democrats ran against Donald Trump. So Nikki Haley's really playing by Donald Trump's rules right now. It comes at a time when Haley is using, you might call it and say it, a new schoolyard strategy, sandbox strategy. She's fighting back against the bully. Call Donald Trump whatever you want. Like him, not like him, he's a bully. 
And that's how he acts in politics. Politics ain't beanbags. It's a full contact sport. But her decision now to repeatedly challenge Donald Trump to debate and fight back is bold. You might say, where has that been the past 11 months? Fair criticism. But it's a different kind of ball game she's playing now. Here she is in her home state of South Carolina. Get on a debate stage and let's go. Bring it, Donald. Show me what you got. And Haley attacks appear to be working. We know that because Trump is returning the favor with attacks of his own. We've just, in the past couple of minutes, gotten another long statement by President Trump's spokesperson about Nikki Haley. On True Social, President Trump called her bird brain again. In the same post, he threatened donors, saying anyone who makes a contribution to Haley is banned from MAGA camp. So, in other words, if you donate to Nikki Haley going forward, if Donald Trump wins, then you're persona non grata in the new administration. And that's how bullies work. That's how they acted in high school, right? If you're nice to XYZ person, then you can't come to my party on Friday night. And full disclosure, I was bullied in high school. I was a weird kid. So I have a particular loathing for bullies. The only way to win against a bully is to embarrass them. Haley's trying. And she has a very powerful ally, Rupert Murdoch. This morning, when I looked on the Wall Street Journal's website, Three of the six Wall Street Journal opinion pieces on their homepage supported Haley, or at least supported running the race rather than declaring Trump the victor after two states, which his supporters seem to do. Trump should debate Haley. Trump throws a temper tantrum in New Hampshire. Haley revealed Trump's weaknesses. Those all three were on the Wall Street Journal's website this morning. Nothing pro-Trump was on the Journal's website. It got us thinking, and I think this is a reasonable question, Where was this Nikki Haley for the past 11 months? But she is here now, and she's clearly gotten under Donald Trump's skin. Corey Lewandowski is here, former campaign manager for Donald Trump in 2016. Corey, I see you smiling. This is a question. Look, I think we can all agree, you and I talked on the night of the New Hampshire primary, that that Donald Trump is the the undisputed frontrunner in the Republican Party. But Trump's performance in New Hampshire, 2016, 33.5% of the vote. Uh, 2024, 54.4% of the vote. He got more, but he won by a lot less. He was, uh, what, 20 points ahead in 2016 of the nearest competitor, and he was about 12 points ahead of Nikki Haley is where things ended up. So why, why declare this over? Why is this over after only two states voted? Well, Leland, look, the history has indicated that no candidate of either party has ever won both in Iowa and in New Hampshire and not gone on to secure their respective nomination. Uh, We have seen when a candidate wins in Iowa or wins in New Hampshire, the battle has historically continued. But Donald Trump had a decisive victory by record margins in Iowa. He came here to my home state of New Hampshire, won there. And look, his his next contest is going to be in the state of Nevada. Nikki Haley is not even participating in that contest, which is a little surprising to me when delegates are at stake. She did not do the necessary work to go and try and secure some of those delegates. So her next opportunity to go after Donald Trump via the delegate process, which is what it takes to become the nominee, is in her home state of South Carolina in the middle of at the end of February. So it's a long time away. She has to continue to maintain a high profile and continue to challenge him. But the only way to be the nominee is to secure delegates. Well, look, no, no argument that 
that he's the undisputed frontrunner. So I guess my question is, why does he care? There's a, a, a statement just out today, kiss of death, Nikki Haley uh, went on. Uh, she spends all her time on the campaign trail complaining about President Trump is dominating the primary caucuses. She's resorted to name calling. There's something a little rich about Donald Trump complaining about name calling. And I, I think about some of his uh, attacks uh, on on her. If he's the presumptive nominee, if his if his enemy is Joe Biden and he's going to run away with this, why bother attacking Nikki Haley? Well, Leland, because look, here's the thing. We all know what the Biden administration has done to this country for the last three years. And if Nikki Haley decides to get out of the race and support Donald Trump, it allows him to put the full apparatus of the Republican National Committee behind him. There doesn't have to be some kind of resolution passed, as they talked about today. So what that would do is allows Donald Trump to focus squarely on the November election. Instead, Nikki Haley wants to stay in this race. There's no true path forward for her as the nominee, and it will just continue to divide the Republicans and spend money against ourselves and give Joe Biden that path. So, because look, for all of Joe oh, Biden's but, credit- Corey, Corey, I, Corey I, I, I get that. I get why he wants to be considered the presumptive nominee. Any Anybody would be. But if Nikki Haley's not a threat, as you have laid out why you don't believe um, she is, why why bother talking about her? Why elevate her? Why allow cable news segments to begin with with this rather than talking about Donald Trump's attacks on Joe Biden? Well, because, look, unfortunately, you know, the media has perpetuated Nikki up as this amazing candidate recently. And she did amazingly well in Iowa and she did amazingly well in New Hampshire. And, you know, she's down 40 points in her home state. Donald Trump has the endorsement of every elected official in the state of South Carolina. Yeah. I look forward to that race coming. And so, you know, if you're Nikki Haley and you really want to defeat Joe Biden, which you tell us is what your goal is, then let's unite and get yeah. that done. We cannot as a country afford another four I, years of the Biden administration. I think, I'm glad you brought that up because it's a fascinating question. And she on the stump talks about how she does much better in the polls. And you just brought up polls. She does much better in the polls against Joe Biden. She does much better in swing states. She does much better with independent voters. She does much better with all of the people, right, who who voted for Donald Trump in 2016 and then voted for Joe Biden in 2020. And that's why Joe Biden won. Isn't there a theory here that, that Donald Trump needs Nikki Haley, more importantly, Donald Trump needs Nikki Haley's supporters a lot more than Nikki Haley needs Donald Trump? Well, the reality is, you know, in the closed primary system, Donald Trump is unbeatable. Donald Trump beats Nikki Haley by 60 points amongst the Republican electorate. So when you get to these closed primary states, the yeah, winner no, no, take no, all Corey, states. Corey, no, Corey, no, no argument there. I'm not talking about the closed primary system. I'm talking about beating Joe Biden, which is what you said was sure. so important. Yeah, yeah, in Leland, terms of exactly beating right, Joe yeah. Biden, in terms of but, beating Joe Biden, Donald Trump needs Nikki Haley's supporters in order to do that. I'm not sure how we, calling her bird brain and, and d disparaging her supporters gets you to your end goal or gets Donald Trump to his end goal. But Leland, I just want to remind everybody in 2016, they told us Jeb Bush would be the great candidate who could beat Hillary Clinton. He was a much more moderate Republican. And we've heard this time and time again when, when, when the Republican Party nominated uh, Mitt Romney. He's, he's a moderate. He can win in a blue state. He got trounced by Barack Obama. Look, what we saw in 2016 was those men and women who were forgotten, who were left behind because the failed policies of the previous administrations came out and supported Donald Trump in record numbers. I think we're there again. And the southern border mm -hmm. crisis cuts across every socioeconomic status, every geopolitical environment, every mm -hmm. wealth demographic there is, every race and age and ethnicity demographic. And if we don't get that under control and the American people believe Donald Trump is the person to get that under control, we don't have a country. So I think Donald Trump is going to win potentially on that issue alone. Do we want Nikki Haley supporters 
Donald Trump wants everybody supporting him. But the fact is, the top of the ticket has to be tough, right. and Donald Trump's the person who can win. Well, uh, you, you got us actually the perfect segue to our border segment, which is where we're headed right now. Corey, thank you as always. We appreciate the time. Let us know when you're in D.C. We'd love to see you. There is breaking news on the border tonight. Live pictures of Eagle Pass, Texas will suddenly appear on your screen in just a minute, where the standoff between the state of Texas and the federal government intensified again today. Up to 13 states have now pledged to send National Guardsmen to the border in support of Governor Greg Abbott and his continued defiance of the Supreme Court. President Trump just weighed in on this. He views this as a huge general election issue. Texas has rightly invoked the invasion clause of the Constitution and must be given full support to repel the invasion. We encourage all willing states to deploy their guards to Texas to prevent the entry of illegals and to remove them back across the border. Very strong words. And look, as Corey laid out, Donald Trump believes that the border is his number one issue to win the general election. It's a threat to national security, and reasonable people can agree that there's a crisis as our southern border. It's effectively an open border. But today, we also heard that Trump wants to kill any hope of a deal in the Senate that would actually help close the border. Punchbowl News reports that Mitch McConnell, Senate Minority Leader, is backing away from a border deal after Trump inserted himself into Republican negotiations. The challenge is posed by former President Donald Trump's dominance in the presidential primary, giving Trump's desire to avoid any deal-making on, on the border before the election. Mitt Romney attacked Donald Trump earlier. Oh, I, I, think, I think the border is a very important issue for uh, Donald Trump. Uh, and the fact that he would communicate to uh, Republican senators and Congress people that he doesn't want us to solve the border problem because he wants to blame uh, Biden for it is, uh, is really appalling. All right, News Nation political contributor Chris Hahn, president of the Counterpoint Institute Policy. Jay Bradley Farrell is with us now. Nice to see both of nice you. Nice to see you. Um, Jay, I was thinking this is like Merrick Garland all over again, right? Well, the Biden administration is the one to blame for what's going on at the border. And Governor Abbott had every right to invoke this clause, every constitutional right to do this. Uh, Biden, before he came into office, declared to the world that our borders were open. And I was down there on the border just two months after he came. Maybe I, I, I understand that that's where where the border is and why it's a problem. We've we've covered it extensively. My question is, if it is such the problem that you lay out. Mm-hmm. How is it not, I mean, beyond playing politics, it seems pretty shameful to not make a deal to close the border. Yeah, the, the deal, we don't need a deal to close the border. <laughs> President Biden is the one, I was down there two months after the border was opened by him, after he got into office. He, I was talking to federal law enforcement and local law enforcement who were being told to let human okay, traffickers okay. out of jail. This is why everybody hates Washington. <laughs> Right. Uh, one party says there's a problem. The other party says there's no problem. They find a way to, to have, get a compromise. Finally, there's a compromise. And the other party says, no, we still want the issue. It's your fault, even though for 40 years we haven't been able to have a border security bill 
in Washington or an immigration bill in Washington. In 2013, the same thing happened. Democrats and Republicans got together in the Senate. They passed a border security and immigration reform act that went nowhere in the House because the House Republicans wanted the issue for the election. And Donald Trump is doing the same exact this thing right now. It's the only bill. issue he has. It He's is, got no look, other issue. Look, can, no we, other we, hold on. I'm going to just say, we, no, this hold is on. Not a border security you, you, spoke, you answered two, two have, questions. You uh, answered my, two questions. The fairest show on television, the fairest show on television dictates that we actually are fair about this. This is a compromise. It is a deal to change the parole rules. It's a deal to put more border security. It's a deal to fund Ukraine. What, please answer the question. How is it acceptable that Republicans won a deal, negotiated a deal, and then as soon as Donald Trump comes in and tells them not to make the deal, they listen to him, who is not currently an elected person. Well, why should border security be linked to Ukraine? That's the point. Because that's these how Washington two, works. These are, you wait, compromise Chris, with each other to make a deal. It's called give and take. It's called checks and balances. It's called one party wants this, the other party wants that. How do we make a deal? That's okay. what Donald Trump, Donald Trump wrote a book called The Art of the Deal. He should be celebrating this deal but he's a fraud, just like everybody well, well, in the House who supported him. Enough with the name calling. Okay, it's not it's not a fraud, right? It's just it, it exposes it for what it is. It exposes that he cares more about a general well, election issue Ukraine, than he does about the border. A Ukraine aid package does not need to be tied to a border security package. HR two, I helped my organization actually help pass that through the Senate. It is a comprehensive legislation bill. Border security, we don't need uh, more money going to the border. Border patrol does need I, some more I, money. I, I but spent, what we need to do my head, is I spent six, I spent you, six you years. Got the first word. I spent, I spent six we years of my career to, working in the United States Senate. Okay. What <laughs> belongs in a bill in the Senate is what will get that bill passed. Get done what you want to get done. We want I, I, Ukraine. They want border security. Let's make a deal. It, it Here it is. It's working it the way it's supposed to be working it, until it, that I think, guy I think gets you, involved. I think we made the point. Thank you very yes. much. It's good to see both of you. Appreciate it. Thank you. Nice to see you. Three years after legalizing hard drugs, Oregon calls mercy. Is anyone surprised overdose deaths and ER visits skyrocketed while making them illegal? Put the genie back in the bottle. And farmers all out revolt over taxes and green energy policy. Can it make a difference before food prices double again? The anti-climate change looms are certainly how the elites are trying to present them, but when you actually get among them, you find that these are people who are exactly as you say. They are people who work in the real economy. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Welcome back. Three years after Oregon legalized drugs. Video like this is what they have to show for it. Go to downtown Portland, go visit wine country. Here's what you see. Overdose deaths are at record numbers. It saved no lives. In fact, it's made things worse. Emergency room visits are at record numbers. And they're skyrocketing crime rates. So Portland, reasonable people can agree, is a complete mess. Businesses like Nike, Target, Walmart, and others have pulled out of the city after the city streets have become open-air drug markets where people shopping for fentanyl came close to those outnumbering those shopping for sneakers. Businesses. Businesses are struggling. Communities are struggling. People are dying. This is not working. So what are we going to do about it? 
Are we going to give it more time? We've had three years. Should we do four or five? My group and what I think is there is an urgent need to do something now. All right, so Oregon lawmakers now want a do-over, right? Because it was called Proposition 110 that, that legalized things. They have proposed legislation recriminalizing drugs like fentanyl, heroin, and meth. But critics, like Oregon's district attorneys, say the measure is far too little, far too late. With us now, Oregon State Representative Christine Goodwin. It's nice to see you, ma'am. Thank you. Uh, does this have any chance of passing? Yes, there's still strong activism protectionists in the state, um, mostly Democrats who really are resistant to recriminalizing. They still, they will speak of the drug addiction crisis and the urgency to do something, and yet all of their proposals are really just baby steps. They're not going to change the direction um, that I can see in any way. It's just light. Wow. Um, I, I was just resp- I was, I was as much responding to the video as I was to the, the video of, yep. of what people look like on these drugs. Um, proposed changes, House Bill 4002, mm-hmm. uh, makes drug possession a Class A misdemeanor, mandates treatment to avoid jail time, bans the public use of drugs, requires prison sentences for drug dealing. They, they sound like sort of basic things. What I'm trying to figure out, though, is you have had an influx of people into Oregon. Um, of junkies and addicts and dealers and everything else for obvious reasons because they they know what the laws are. Is just this enough to put the genie back in the bottle? No, I don't think so. And Oregonians, when they passed ballot measure 110, what they wanted for people suffering with drug addiction, they wanted treatment instead of jail, understandably. The problem is they have not been seeking treatment voluntarily. So the problem, as all of your pictures depict, has has just exploded. It's just sad what it has done to Portland, Oregon. So it's spilled out into our streets, exacerbated the homelessness. We have open-air markets. So when you just remove all barriers, um, decriminalizing drug use, you're going to get more of it. So what they're actually... Oregon took this to the extreme, right? Oregon drug deaths uh, up 38 percent, um, 1,700 through August of 2023, high, high, third highest increase in the United States. Oregon sort of created its own opioid crisis by this law. But we've covered a lot of cities, right? Uh, think in Philadelphia, Chicago, my hometown is St. Louis, Los Angeles, San Francisco, where even the laws on the books aren't enforced. And I'm wondering if there's any desire, even if you guys pass this law if the district attorney in Portland, who I don't know, but I'm guessing is pretty liberal just based on the demographics, are going to enforce them and actually then charge and prosecute drug dealers with felonies and force people to either go to rehab or go to jail. So what they're proposing is a C misdemeanor, which isn't much more than the violation right now that's being handed out thousands of uh, violations and yet less than two percent of people are seeking tri- treatment and the c misdemeanor our law enforcement law enforcement tells us will not really help them significantly significantly with any tools so then they want they're adding this deflection instead of calling it a diversion they're calling it a deflection program so it, what is yet to be defined but again, it's sort of a stop. It's sort of a pit stop. It's still a big nothing. It's a big nothing. The C and uh, a the rose. reflection. 
We are arguing I, I, for an A misdemeanor, which is is similar to a Dewey, right? It's uh, drinking while driving. Yeah, I did drive around there. Wow. No, and and when you, we, we want to continue with the diversion programs and the specialty drug courts. Fascinating. Yeah. Really so you say we, we, when you're when you're when you're starting to argue over what you're calling uh, sending people to jail or to to treatment, uh, what name it is? I guess that sort of arose by any other name or. Uh, as we like to say, rearranging the deck chairs on the Titanic. It's good to see you, ma'am. Uh, we're lo- we're going to follow this bill through uh, the committees and through the House and then um, and see what happens. Thank you for joining us. We appreciate it. You're welcome, Alan. Good night. European farmers say they've had enough. Farmers are blocking roads across Europe, mobilizing in huge numbers in protest against their own government. More than 3,000 tractors and 2,000 trucks, plus an estimated 1.4 million people have been protesting all over Europe, France, Germany, Belgium, and it's spreading. Blue-collar workers, farm workers, rural workers, fighting for their livelihoods and standing up against their own government. It's the sort of protest that used to happen all the time in Europe by the left. Now it's happening by people who would be traditional Europeans. They're fed up with climate change policies that will wipe away generations of family farms from Germany through Belgium to France. Farmers are now parking their tractors on roads rather than in fields. And they are protesting the very same policies that elites in America would love to enforce here. Plus, pay attention, because what's happening in Europe could send grocery prices here in America sky high. With that, we bring in Tom Slater. He is the editor of Spiked, just got back from covering the protests in Berlin. Phenomenal piece that you wrote, Tom. I appreciate it. Um, Take us through um, who these people are. Are they just sort of anti-climate change loons, or are they uh, folks with a legitimate grievance? I mean, anti-climate change looms are certainly how the elites are trying to present them. But when you actually get among them, you find that these are people who are exactly as you say. They are people who work in the real economy. They are people who are working in agriculture. They're also been joined, as you suggested, by many truckers, people who know where the food and the energy and the electricity comes from, are saying to their environmentalist elites, you don't understand us, you're inflicting these policies on us from on high and not only are they destroying our industries in Germany, they've been losing about 10 farms per day for the past decade in large part as a consequence of punishing green policies, but also that it's affecting everyone in society. Germany has insane green policies, it's got amongst the most solar and the most wind power in Europe, and it's also got amongst the highest energy prices in Europe. So you're even seeing a lot of solidarity from just ordinary members of the German public as well. So I think what we're really seeing here is a, is a sort of uh, new form of populist revolt, if you like. I'm watching the videos that are coming out of this. It's absolutely wild. Um, is this going to spread? Is this the kind of thing you think? I mean, I remember the truck trucker protests during COVID that mm. were in Canada, possibly came to the United States. As, you, as you've studied this issue across across the world, are these are they protesting the same kind of policies that America has, or is Europe just sort of so far on the other side that it, it's not it's not something relevant to us? Mm-hmm. What I find is a sort of remarkable sort of commonality between a lot of the movements that we're seeing. So we're talking now about the farmers' revolt. We've seen that in the Netherlands. We've seen that in Germany, Ireland, even Belgium, as you say, in France as well now. Uh, and obviously, a lot of that has to do with green policies. But you know, we also saw in recent years the yellow vest, the gilets jaunes in France, which were people who lived in the suburbs, in the peripheries, again, small business people, truckers, and so on, who were being hit by punishing green taxes. Something like the trucker revolt in Canada 
different insofar as it was to do with COVID mandates, but I think has a similar kind of kernel to it, which is the people who really are necessary for society to keep running, much more than the white-collar elites of Ottawa or Berlin or anywhere else. The people who, if they don't show up to work, the food doesn't end up on the shelves. The people, if they don't show up to work, the energy isn't produced, the things are shipped, they're standing up for themselves. Yeah, look, and if, right, they're standing up for themselves because they're getting squeezed and their profits mm-hmm. are getting taken away. At some point, getting up at 4 a.m. to milk a cow uh, doesn't really seem that appealing if you're not able to make any money um, doing it. Farmers protesting across Europe, climate regulations and taxes, increase in production costs, fuel, energy, the things that you talked about. Mm-hmm. We're experiencing the same thing in America. Free trade agreements. I think about where I'm from in northern Michigan. Uh, the, the farmers there are the cherry farmers. The National Cherry mm-hmm. Festival is, is home in Traverse City, Michigan. Uh, and a lot of farmers say it's not worth growing cherries anymore because the Turks are are dumping cherries into America. And then this issue of generational family inheritance um, in America, there's this real issue of families being able to pass down farms generation to generation mm-hmm. uh, and, and facing huge taxes. The, the pictures we're seeing uh, in in Europe. Are they making a difference or are the political leaders paying attention? Are they going to take a step back? What's happening? Well, they've got no choice but to pay attention. I mean, what's been really uh, fascinating is the fact they've shown the political elites that you don't want to get on the wrong side of people who operate heavy machinery. They can actually bring society (laughs) to a standstill quite quickly. Uh, In Germany, as an example, they already have tried to, the government that is, have tried to offer a couple of concessions. That's not calmed things down. Um, But I think that these were only really at the beginning of this. Um, It's not to say that the battle is over by any stretch of the imagination, but for the first time, certainly for as long as I've been paying attention to this particular particular issue. The the whole climate discussion is finally meeting and running into just the realities of the voters and industry and what ordinary people are willing to part with. And therefore, I don't think that the elites can carry on as they have been for the past 10 years or so. Yeah, I think about grocery prices in the United States up 30 percent or so uh, since the Mm -hmm. beginning of the pandemic. And I can just imagine um, if all of a sudden a bunch of farmers parked their combines on, on the Beltway here in, in Washington, <laughs> D.C. or up on Capitol Hill. Hey, Tom, uh, fascinating re- reporting in Spike. Uh, it's linked in War Notes, uh, which is our newsletter that goes out uh, and we'll tweet it out as well uh, from there in Spike. Great work. Thank you. Uh, come back and talk to us about this stuff. I think you're right. The movement here, uh, Germany farmers are fighting back against green tyranny. The, the movements that you're talking about are far from over. Thank you. Thank you very much. Here's something else for people to protest. The economic divide in America. The rich get richer, the poor get left behind. Why those struggling to pay rent don't seem to matter to President Biden politically. The economic growth is stronger than we had during the Trump administration. My predecessor recently said he was actually hoping for the economy to crash. As President Biden today making his economic pitch to the voters in the key swing state of Wisconsin. And when the president says Biden economics is working, there are a lot of people who agree with him. We dug into the numbers and found the way people feel about the economy is largely about how they feel politically. So this is consumer sentiment uh, graphed not overall for the population, but by your political affiliation. So during Donald Trump's years, Democrats thought the economy wasn't doing well. They weren't that confident. Republicans were extremely confident. This is COVID, so obviously we know what happened there. But during the Trump years, Republicans were very confident. 
and Democrats were not. Uh, when President Biden got elected right there, that was the switch. Boom. Now, here's what's interesting is during the time of President Biden's presidency in the beginning of the year, the first couple of years, Democratic sentiment crashed. It's now steadily been going up. Republicans have stayed about the same. Now, historically speaking, this is also true. We'll go back and look, going back uh, to the 1980s under Ronald Reagan, there was a a big gap in the data. And then President Bush, you can see the great uh, financial crisis. President Obama, there was still this same difference. Trump gets elected. Republicans, consumer confidence goes sky high. The market took off like a rocket ship. Then you have the pandemic. Here's the cross. We see this. Now, this is what's most interesting. Okay, is that right in the past month or so, and President Biden talked about this, the consumer confidence has gone up by the most it has ever gone up in one month. And that is right here, especially among Democrats. It's skyrocketed uh, 15 to 18 points for Republicans in 2024. It didn't go up much at all. And it got us thinking about why this was. We saw firsthand why while we were in New Hampshire. We talked to a Trump supporter about her life and how her life was different under President Trump than it is now under President Biden. I can't afford to pay my rent. I can't afford to buy my food. Everything is different since Biden's been in office. So now that Trump's coming, hopefully coming Of course, the president has no direct control over the cost of rent, but her response shows that where you sit depends an awful lot on where you stand on the economy, where you sit, meaning where you sit in the socioeconomic class system of America. Bachyungar Sargon is here. She studies about these things, studies these things and writes about them and joins us now. Maybe I shouldn't be as surprised by this data, especially the skyrocketing consumer sentiment among Democrats and not among Republicans, but I am. Um, thank you so much for having me on the Fair Show on television, Leland. Always love to join you here. Um, of course, as we discuss all the time, what you're seeing there is not so much a political divide as it is a class divide. We know that there has been a realignment. The Democrats were once the party of the working class, the party of labor. They now represent pretty much college-educated elites and the dependent yeah. poor, whereas it's the Republicans who now really have a lock on the working class voter. And so when you're asking people, how you feel about the economy. Of course, if you are doing well, if you're part of the college-educated elites, if you're a homeowner, if you have a stock portfolio, the economy actually is doing really well for you. It's for the 90% of other Americans who are not homeowners, who do not have a stock portfolio, who live paycheck to paycheck, for whom things are absolutely unaffordable. Yeah, I think about this in just in terms of President Biden's economic policies. And look, this is America. You get elected. Elections have consequences. You get to put in place your policies and the policies that that help these specific groups you talk about. Uh, College debt forgiveness helps people who have college degrees by definition. Uh, EV tax credits to buy an electric vehicle. It helps people who can afford Teslas, for example, uh, mostly urban uh, working folks work from home for all federal employees, helps federal employees who get to work from home now that President Biden hasn't forced back uh, into the office. This is what I can't quite figure out. And what I'm and what I'm wondering about is you see it is that that under President Trump, you, you see what the gap was roughly about 40 points. You see it now here. Uh, it's not so much. It's it's still probably more than 40 points, but I'm wondering what you think has happened between, say, you know, December or so 
maybe November of 2023 and now that have had Democrat-leaning consumers all of a sudden feel so much better? I think it became very clear in that time that we are not entering a recession and that a lot of the prognostications from last year were wrong, as they often are, um, and that we, you know, we, there was a little bit of easing on inflation. But Leland, of course, that comes from having 11 million illegal immigrants here to do jobs for less than minimum wage. Of course, that's going to stop right away all of the wage growth that working class people had. You have people now talking about how much it's easier to find workers and it's easier to find workers who work for cheap. So, of course, that was directly a result of President Biden's open border and had a huge impact on the economy and, crucially, on how the consumers of cheap labor and low-wage labor and working-class labor mm. feel about the economy. Yeah, no, it, it makes perfect sense. Look, if you're, if you're buying goods made by, by illegal immigrants or by working-class Americans, now suddenly you feel really good. If you're competing for those jobs and suddenly wages are staying low, you feel uh, you feel terrible. Bacha, you were the person, perfect person to, for this segment. I have to give a, a big thanks to my friend Michael Farr, who pointed out um, the discrepancy in this data. Uh, Bacha, thank you. We'll talk mm-hmm. soon. We talked about this first on War Notes. That's our daily newsletter that comes out at 4 p.m. Eastern every day. You can subscribe for free, warnotes.com. It gives you a look at our thoughts about the most important stories of the day. Go to warnotes.com. And subscribe. Also chime in on social media at Leland Vittert. Next, as more states push for legalization, new research shows marijuana is leading to a higher number of cases of psychosis in Americans' teens. Kids literally losing their minds so middle-aged Americans can get high. So why is there now a fight among Democrats in the Senate over not pot, but nicotine? psychosis risk from marijuana. It's all the more prevalent now, obviously, because pot's legal. And Senator Schumer used all the happy talk and data to help legalize marijuana. It doesn't hurt anybody. The laws against pot are racist, on and on and on. And to be fair, he's got some points. But when it comes to nicotine, he now sees things very differently. This is Zinn. And as you can see, it comes in a whole lot of flavors, smooth, spearmint, Citrus, cinnamon, chill. It's dangerous. And we need to stop it from being marketed. So Zinn is nicotine pouches that sit in your mouth. They deliver the drug without being tobacco. So it's basically the high of smoking a cigarette without the cigarettes or tobacco. Guy Bentley is here, the director of consumer freedom at the Reason Foundation. Nice to see you. You know, I think about the people who use marijuana, and then I think about the people who use Zinn or who are normal, often rural white men, 18 to, say, 35. Is, is there a class divide issue here, or is this, should we just think that Senator Schumer thinks Zinn's really bad for you? I think there certainly is a class divide here. What you find with uh, consuming of nicotine, whether it's Zinn or the more dangerous forms of nicotine, such as cigarettes, that's disproportionately concentrated among people without a college degree and on lower incomes. So when we're talking about policies that's cracking down on, say, cigarettes through taxes or regulations, 
and even the safer alternatives to cigarettes, which are actually helping people quit smoking, like Zinn, there is a disproportionate impact on lower-income Americans who aren't of the socioeconomic grade that you might find consuming other drugs. Yeah, or marijuana. This is some of the Instagram videos. Like, Zinn has become very popular among a certain a certain group of Americans. I think you rightly point out who it is. But this would be my question. You say, you know, the, the issue of, of nicotine. I get cigarettes are, are bad for you and they cause cancer and everything else. No argument there. But what I'm trying to figure out is why would there be a push against nicotine as delivered as a drug that really in, in non-tobacco form, what's the, what's the money and the influence and the lobbying behind that push? Yeah, a lot of this uh, comes from in terms of campaigns against reduced risk alternatives to smoking, like e-cigarettes or nicotine pouches. A lot of the influence in campaigning for that comes from people like Michael Bloomberg, who have invested hundreds of millions of dollars in campaigning to get these products banned outright or to have the flavors in these products banned, which is what actually helps adults who want to switch away from cigarettes actually do so to make these products appealing. And there is a sort of illusion that these are massively youth appealing and that's the reason they come in flavors but that's not the case at all with nicotine pouches only one and a half percent of youth have even used them wow fascinating interesting conversation thank you so much thank you next the greatest generation speaks again the lessons we can all learn from masters of the air all that we do day in day out there's something to a guy, doesn't it? We're here to fight the monsters. The things these people are capable of. They got it coming. It's a clip from Masters of the Air, available in a few hours on Apple TV. The nine-part series follows the 100th bomb group of the 8th Air Force that flew near suicide missions from Britain into the teeth of Hitler's air defenses. For decades, Americans listened to their parents and later their grandparents when they would tell you about World War II. My grandfather, pictured here in France, like many of the greatest generation, rarely talked about what he did in World War II. It just wasn't done. But by example, they taught us lessons from those hard years. They told us about what their friends did, about what the country did. We learned about Omaha Beach and D-Day. We heard stories about the people they knew before the war that didn't come home. We heard about the dangers of an America that isolated itself. Here's President Reagan on the cliffs of Point de Hoc. These are the men who took the cliffs. These are the champions who helped free a continent. And these are the heroes who helped end a war. Hmm. When Reagan spoke those words 40 years ago, He oversaw an American military unmatched around the world. Sadly, that is no longer the case. On the 82nd anniversary of Pearl Harbor in December of last year, there were only a few left. The youngest active duty personnel were 17. That makes them 98 today. Time heals all wounds, but it also lets us forget the horrors and the lessons of those wounds. Now more than ever, since World War II, America's place in the world is under threat and challenge. And the lessons of the greatest generation are fading. We'll have the author of Masters of the Air on with us tomorrow night to share some of those lessons. Here's Chris. Thank you. 
Hey, everybody, I'm Chris Cuomo. It's Thursday. We have some very heavy news happening on our watch. So let's get after it. Why do I say heavy? Well, as I speak, a man is being put to death and it's being done in a way that we've never seen before in America. Kenneth Eugene Smith is this murderer from Alabama on death row, survived an execution by lethal injection about a year ago, and there became this whole kerfluffle about how do you do this and meet the Eighth Amendment cruel and unusual punishment? How do you do this uh, lethal injection? So they have a new method, untested, controversial, nitrogen asphyxiation. We did a 